Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. I'm Donald McIntyre and this is Murderers and Their Mothers, the companion podcast to the CBS reality series, which airs every Sunday from the 15th of May at 10 p.m. Throughout this series, we're investigating some of the world's most notorious killers and asking, were these murderers born evil or did their relationships with their mothers make them into monsters? In this first episode, we'll be discussing the case of Daniel Bartlam, the 14-year-old who killed his mother with a claw hammer and then sought to cover his tracks by concocting a story that came straight from a soap opera and involving a made-up intruder and a house fire. In this episode, we'll be piecing together the relationship between Daniel and his mother as we try and discover what turned him into a killer. Well, joining me to discuss these issues are Dr. Elizabeth Yardley, Director of the Centre for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University. Hello. Welcome, Liz. And also Dr. David Holmes, a criminal psychologist at Manchester Metropolitan University. Hello there. Now, Daniel Bartlam was just 14 years old when he savagely beat his own mother to death with a claw hammer and then set fire to the family home in a desperate attempt to cover his tracks. His original story to police was simple. An interrupted burglar had killed his mother and then set fire to the house. But the story quickly unravelled to reveal the truth. Daniel had murdered his mother. Daniel Bartlam was born on the 11th of November 1996 to Jacqueline Bryant and Adrian Bartlam in Nottinghamshire. At first, his was a happy childhood. He was adored within a stable family. However, that changed when shortly after the birth of his younger brother, his parents divorced. Liz and David, was there any hint in his early years of the murderer he would become? Well, we haven't really heard anything come out of his childhood, his early years childhood. We haven't heard of him being aggressive towards other children at nursery or at playgroup or, or, or in those, those early days. But you would expect something to be... To be a few little odd behaviours, but obviously no one was looking because there was no hint. Yeah. You know, there was couldn't have been anything dramatic. But if you're looking at kids who are isolating themselves and maybe harming other kids, then you might be a little concerned. But there mustn't have been any of this. 
With the arrival of his new sibling, that kind of rivalry, what impact does that have on Daniel? That kind of removes that security blanket whereby he's the centre of attention, you know, things that sort of gravitate around him. And he, he doesn't actually hit any barriers. More or less what he wants, he will get. He doesn't have any kind of conflicts and he doesn't make massive demands because most things are met anyway. But when you've suddenly got another focus of attention, that pulls the rug out from his little world. So if it's bad enough to have a sibling and your universe is kind of rocked with another planet in the solar system. Here he is, his parents get divorced. And that comes at a very crucial age, Liz. Yeah, and this is early adolescence. This is an age in which he's he's developing, um, his, his hormones are kicking in, his behaviour is going to be kind of awry a little bit because of those physiological changes. So throw in the, the disruption in the social circumstances as well. And you've got quite a toxic mix going on there. Yeah, and you throw in a new partner... When Jackie gets a new partner, uh, inevitably, and that comes into the mix. There's a lot of turbulence there for a young kid. Yeah, there's a lot going on at this this point in time in his life. But we've also got to think, let's try and put this in context. There are a lot of children who are going to be experiencing these kind of upheavals and these kind of changes. So, I mean, it seems to me that he's at a, appears, from what we know, looking back, a reasonably normal childhood, whatever that is. But in respect of other child killers, you know, what kind of childhoods do we see in them that differ from the childhood we've seen here? Well, we often see quite a lot of differences. So we see family situations which are very chaotic, very unstable. So we see violence, we see abuse, we see neglect. And we see that kind of displayed externally. So other people notice changes in, in those families and, and they realise that something is wrong with this, this but of course family here, quite early on. We don't see anything significant in either Daniel's behaviour. It seems a reasonably stable, albeit with divorce, kind of family environment. And there's no hint on the outside in his childhood that there's anything wrong or there's anything particularly wrong with the family. Whatever might have been wrong with Daniel in his earlier years was behind closed doors and not really noticed or made evident by his parents. Well, after the divorce, Daniel faces more upheaval when, due to financial reasons, his mother is forced to move house and Daniel has to attend a new school. Now, Rebecca Sherdley is a journalist for the Nottingham Post who covered the story. It did emerge that the background of Daniel and how he'd been to a private school and then when his parents divorced, it meant that he had to go to a mainstream school. And I think it seems like a lot of the problems began to happen after then. Many of us had to change school at different times, but this is a lot of change, very quick for one young man. It is, and it's kind of disturbing. It'd be disturbing for the average child, but for Daniel, this is a great deal of disturbance. And in a way, Daniel actually did kind of react in a kind of controlled but protracted set of temper tantrums. He, he bit by bit kind of created an aggressive environment in his own little confines, uh, which eventually culminated in the horror of his mother's death. And I think it's, it, it's not just the change of school, but it's a change in the type of school. So he's gone from a fee-paying school to, to an everyday state comprehensive. And I think Daniel probably had developed a little bit of a sense of entitlement. He's special, he's middle class, he's surrounded by boys who are like that. And then suddenly to find himself in an environment that's, that's not quite as, as middle class... 
then that's going to really kind of put him out, isn't it? And he's already aware of that class structure and where he fits in that society. But who's he blaming for the loss of this apparent perfect life? He's placing the blame very, very very firmly at the, the hands of his mother. Yes, I think his mother became the kind of target for his kind of obsessive want for control again. He wanted to, to, to gain control again over the family environment, over his own existence. Now, it seems that his father, his natural father, Adrian, was not also a, a check on him and perhaps couldn't be, but he still had contact with his father. Why didn't he blame his father for his change in circumstances? Most people blame the here and now. They blame the people that they can actually contact. It's not logical, it's not realistic, but he could, if you like, have a go at his mother. He couldn't really have a go at his father. And she was there and she was accessible, wasn't she? Yeah, and we talk about it, his change in circumstances as if he'd, you know, it was a radical change. I mean, I've been there where, to the house where the terrible events took place. It's a very good area. This wasn't a troubled area. It wasn't a sink estate. He still had a very decent and supported kind of family life. I mean, he was by no means, you know, poor. So in many ways, if he had been in a more difficult area, if they, if, he, if they had had been under, you know, perhaps the scrutiny of social services, things might have been flagged up earlier which would have provoked an intervention, which might have prevented the terrible events which were mm, to follow. Absolutely. And I think the, the thing to remember here is that Daniel's family did not look like the kind of family that you would expect to raise a killer. You know, we've got a tendency to, to look at families who are, are growing up in deprived circumstances, who are, are raising children in, in rough areas and, and point our fingers at them in terms of future problems. But, but this just did not look like that at all. Well, to add to the cocktail of factors that were at play in this case, Daniel also became obsessed with violent imagery and films. And here's forensic pathologist Kevin Brown. There is some evidence that he was watching some quite horrific horror movies, violent horror movies and gory horror movies at around age eight and nine, which was completely inappropriate imagery for a child of that age. David Liz, why is he watching this material? You know, is it simply a naked lust for violence? Well, he, he wants to watch it. Nobody's stopping him from watching it. It's accessible to him. It's available. So it's something that, that he can do on his own. It's a solitary activity. This is a young lad who does not like hanging around with, with other young lads. He's someone who's very much in, in his own world. So looking at these kind of images, watching films, playing video games, they're very solitary activities, and that's exactly the kind of thing he wants to do. And Daniel has this kind of overriding need to seek out something powerful, Something that, say, gave him some kind of touch of power where he could, you know, be great in the world, that he can control everything. And that sort of watching violence and the oppression of people in, in extreme circumstances, the horror, etc., gives a sense of power. Now, this actually does affect many, many adolescent children. However, in this case, you're affecting an adolescent child who doesn't really have feelings for others. He seems to be creating his own universe within his own room, within his own head, in that relationship between himself and the computer and the material. What could his mother have done to have stopped him or to have monitored him? Well, you can say that she should have gone in and she should have confiscated all his all of his DVDs and, and stopped him doing these things, but... 
you've got to remember this is this is a, a kid who's who's not going to react very well to that kind of situation at all and sometimes it's actually easier for a parent to let the child continue doing this than it is to challenge them it's quite interesting because he's exhibiting some strange and unusual tendencies but also within a concept of difficult stroppy teenagers you know some of those characteristics are not that unusual but is there anything his mother could have done to stop him I think what his mother could have done was start to actually oppose his obsessive controlling behaviour at a much earlier age. By the time Daniel had reached this age, it would have taken quite a... You know, it would have been one hell of a confrontation um, with his mother to try and deviate this, to try and take all of this power, all of his little fantasy world, to completely take it apart and say, no, you're not going to do this, you're going to do that, we're going to take you out, you're going to do sports, whatever it is. Some normal children, maybe it would have been quite a battle, but you would have got through it. In the case of Daniel, I don't think his mother could have achieved that. I wonder whether we're doing her a disservice because it seems to me she could also have made an active decision to be passive, not to provoke confrontation and give him the control of aggression. This is quite common for for mothers uh, and fathers. In this sort of situation where a child is showing rather strange or aberrant behaviour is a bit challenging, is one hand, do you kind of confront it? No, it's going to be too much. But the idea, it might pass. He will grow out of it. This is the kind of dream of, of mothers with troubled children. And in this case, it was inherent. He was heading in a particular direction unless something actually deviated him very severely. He was going to do something that was incredibly wrong. So what's Daniel getting out of watching this imagery? Is he getting aroused? Is he getting excited? Well, he's being exposed to images of of violence. and, And you've got to think, well, what is violence about? It's about power. And it's giving him ideas as to things that that he can do to to be powerful. And he'll be ruminating over it. He'll be fantasizing. And it's almost like you've 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 set off a, a snowball that that is rolling down the hill and getting bigger with the more of of this stuff that he's absorbing. How significant is this issue of you know violent imagery in the Daniel Bartlam story? Basically, where he learned the methods. One of the problems where people try and blame the media for, um, you know, violent incidents, etc., is that the child that absorbs this isn't necessarily the child that's going to do it. Most children are exposed to something like this, but they learn it, they learn the methods, they know how to kill, they know how to get away with it, but they never, ever enact that. There is that moral sense, that, that empathy with others that prevents them from doing that. In this particular case, with Daniel, that was absent. The other part of this story is, of course, the plotline of Coronation Street and the fascination that Daniel had with it. Well, I think the the idea for for Daniel's crime came from the the plotline in Coronation Street where essentially a murder is carried out and then it's it's covered up by the fact that there is a a tram crash. So there's this kind of wide-scale, kind of large-impact devastation which enables somebody to cover up a crime that they've committed. And if you look at the way that Daniel killed his mother, you know, he creates a larger crime, you know, the the so-called burglary and, and that kind of thing um, to cover up the murder of his mum. So it's hiding his crime within a larger crime. That idea has come from that plot. And of course, the sense of real life jumping off the television screen. I know you've done some research on uh, Dexter-like like characters mm. who are going on to commit murder. 
Yeah, people become absorbed sometimes in these these fantasy worlds. So they're they're very deeply engaged in in films, in television series, and almost you know feel that they are becoming the characters, or that they at least have a proximity to these characters and a sympathy and a a kind of closeness to them. A final point on on his obsession with videos. If perhaps his video or computer gaming or computer activity had been monitored, could that have made a difference? I think absolutely. If people were intervening, if they were viewing the kind of thing he was viewing, you know, the kind of computer uh, stuff, how to, how to get away with murder, um, various aspects of that, uh, would sh- you know fire off alarm bells with any sort of normal family. I think they didn't want to know. I think they just assigned it to his kind of strange, obsessive behaviour that he would grow out of. I think what's important to remember in this case as well is that Daniel wasn't the only child in the household. She was also looking after a younger sibling as well. So she's trying to to divide her time between two children, one of whom is incredibly demanding. So it's it's an incredibly difficult situation for her to be in. Well, as he gets older, he gets even more demanding and he's not just watching violent material, he's writing violent stories and writing fictional movie scripts. I mean, he's getting more and more immersed into this alternative world. He's now beginning to throw out challenges to those around him, to say, oh, come on, I dare you, say what I'm doing is wrong, to see them accepting it and sort of looking puzzled, but generally reading and thinking, oh, well, he's being creative. This this is OK in a way, but really, these are massive alarm bells. Mm. This is someone who is thinking about generating, putting together his own kind of horror stories. Uh, and that kind of thing really is something, even with a very normal child, would have raised you know massive alarm bells. Liz, looking at some of his writings, if you can describe them, what really strikes you about them? Well, it's how incredibly graphic they are and how rooted in reality they are. So he's talking about characters with names that that are real people. Um, so, so this isn't, you know, complete fantasy. And I think what's happened here, what, what's really significant for me is that Daniel's gone from consuming violent media to producing it. And I think that's where we start to see the line between fantasy and reality get incredibly blurred. Yes, he's no longer passive. He is now active. And that is very dangerous. This is, represents a new massive escalation in his behaviour. And it should really have been a warning to everybody else. Why wasn't it? Well, I think it is it is a case of, okay, my child's doing these these really disturbing things, but you know, as a mother, you, you care about your children. You want to be careful in terms of any labels that might be attached to them during their teenage years. You don't want that to impact on them later on. So I think you just keep hoping this is a phase, he'll grow out of it, it'll pass, you know, and unfortunately that just doesn't happen. There's a kind of foot-in-the-door situation here. And I think on their part, they just basically did not, at this point, want to confront this. They did not actually want to recognise that there was a, a real danger, that there was a serious problem with him. This was a culmination of trying to sort of assume he's going to grow out of it, assume that it's not really that serious, um, that he doesn't really intend doing any of these things. Too many assumptions there. They're in denial, aren't they, at this yes, point in definitely time. in denial. Uh, they don't really want to recognise this. They'd rather it just blew away. As we've been discussing, it's clear that, you know, his that key graphic story he wrote about Coronation Street, which he threw himself into the heart of the story, 
I mean, clear in this particular script, he's the producer, he's the director, he's the scriptwriter, and he's the main actor, using his own name. Absolutely. And actually putting the whole scenario of what he was going to do, you know, into print. It, it is quite terrifying that this was happening. However, there was one flaw in his plot, which was part of his inherent problems in that he had no emotional insight he had no kind of emotional understanding of what the motivation should be. Why, why would an intruder, you know, kill your mother and set fire to her? What, what's the, what's, what, what would be the motivation for that? This kind of thing is totally absent in his thinking and his storylines. That's the key problem. If you are a psychopath and trying to concoct a plan for the perfect murder, the problem is... If you don't have any empathy, you're missing a whole matrix there of people's reactions to crime and then how to manage them. Yeah, that complete kind of lack of depth of emotional complexity is going to result in some some very bizarre things that that other people would would, would really question and say, oh, hang on a minute, you know, this doesn't quite stack up. But for someone like Daniel Bartlam, that's that's just not the case. Yeah, he just wanted to fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. Unfortunately. Massive holes would be seen by people who have emotions, empathy and look for real motives. And that, of course, is the skill of a good police officer. At this stage, his violence wasn't just limited to his fantasy world or stories and scripts. He begins to show acts of defiance and aggression towards his mother and indeed his stepdad. Yes, he's kind of testing out in the real world his ability to be nasty, to be violent, to to not give in. And it's also, you find that his obsessive going into rages is beginning to become more evident and more frequent. So you've got two things merging. One is that he kicks off more easily. And two, he's testing out his ability to control others. Mm. So it's a kind of third stage, isn't it? First of all, he's immersing himself in the fantasy world and then he's writing this and he's jumping out of it, placing that in the computer, his own scripts. But now he's actually physically hand-in-glove aggression. Well, for people like Daniel Bartlam, the world is their experiment and they will kind of prod people and and do certain things and test out certain behaviours to see what reaction that's going to engender in others. And that's what he was doing with these kind of smaller acts of, of defiance and pushing the boundaries further and further and further when he wasn't really challenged to any significant degree. And there were potential challenges from his stepdad, but he himself found it difficult because, of course, he's in a new blended family and he's got to tiptoe around this. This This is always a very difficult dynamic of being the stepfather and needing, if you like, to assert authority. Yeah, but you get a stepdad's a caught between, you know, trying to assert control and authority and seek approval and of course where you have a difficult dynamic you would always see to mother in that regard. I think we've got to try and kind of put ourselves in the stepdad's place I mean he would have been coming into a family in which this this young lad Daniel is displaying incredibly bizarre behavior so so I think it would have knocked him for six really to begin with as he was figuring out well what on earth do I do about If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. We begin to see even more extreme behaviour from Daniel and he starts to steal his mother's underwear and he's defecating on toys and urinating in his room and he's beginning to destroy his possessions. A kind of a nihilism there, a defiance, a extraordinary escalation. It's straight up the Richter scale. It is incredibly bizarre behaviour, isn't it, when you put it in the context of a normal family home with, with a couple of siblings. I wonder what what's going on with him here. You know, he, he really is escalating and he's not having the brakes put on still. So what's going to happen next? He's running from attention-seeking to territoriality. He, if you like, is creating this environment that basically is uninhabitable by anyone else. He, he, he just, this is my area, this is my territory, I control everything in here, don't you dare even come in. And I think that's part of the message that the parents got. I think this is one of the things that formed that barrier. They didn't want to actually cut below the surface of this. It's almost quite an animalistic primal behaviour, isn't it? It's marking my territory. You know, this is my space. I don't want you to come into it. It it really does make him stand out as, as really completely unlike any other teenage boy. He's trying to provoke. He's really, really kind of laying the the line of what's his and what he controls. This is kind of like, I'm throwing down a challenge as well. I hate anything to do with this nice, squeaky clean existence that you two have got, thinking of his parents. And, you know, I will even defecate on on the toys that you give me because they're nice toys. I you know, only kind of gravitate towards the power of evil. For somebody who's trying to exert control, it seems to me if he's presenting a challenge, then Jackie does the right thing. She doesn't rise to it. She neutralises it by nearly ignoring it. But was that the fatal decision? Because in other people say, this is a red flag, which is a little too extreme for us to ignore. And I think this is a very difficult thing in this situation because we're coming across what, what we consider to be really extreme, really abnormal behaviour. But this is Jackie's oldest teenage son. So he is the kind of benchmark for her for, for normal teenage behaviour. And everybody says about teenagers, they're selfish and they're extreme and they, they fly off the handle and, and all of those kind of normal adolescent behaviours. So so maybe it is that, that she thinks it's... It, this is a teenager, albeit a very extreme one, but it's a teenager. But I think it's, it's quite interesting is that she's lived with him as a continuum. And mm-hmm. so iteratively, month on month, week on week, year on year, she's seeing his behaviour get more odd and bizarre. But eventually that bizarreness becomes her new normal and it becomes mm-hmm. a normal plus plus. So maybe she doesn't yeah. feel the need to radically intervene. It's that kind of foot in the door technique again throughout the life. Um, she's, she's slowly but surely come to accept more and more bizarre behaviour. And, you know, 
it, clearly, you know, this is the firstborn. This is somebody she's going to template that she could learn from. However, you know, we're looking at this. We're analysing the little minutiae of, of his behaviour uh, through professional eyes. This is a mother. This is a mother with challenges of, of job, etc., of keeping her new partner, etc., and, and dealing with two children. This is kind of like a much smaller part of her life then we're giving it credibility for Now, the one time where you begin to think that he is a very troubled kid who's suffering some genuine pain and perhaps some emotions is when he runs away from home. Now, I get that could be a tension-seeking manoeuvre, but he runs back to his old house. And I think he realises that the power that that will have over over his mother, he knows the kind of impact that that is going to have on her. He's going back to, to a place where, you know, they were once a family. And when Jackie comes to, to learn this, she's going to feel bad about it. And he knows that she's going to feel bad about it. So is this another script he's writing out in his head, believing and being able to plot out the reactions of everybody else along the rest of the line? It's quite a sophisticated plot line, that. I mean, he's he's learning about other people's emotions. As he's getting older, he's he's learning what makes other people tick and how to pull their strings. Now, I'm I'm very persuaded by that point from you, Liz, and it's absolutely relevant to the next point: the fact that the teenage Daniel Bartlam, you know, starts to display the symptoms of mental illness, seemingly, you know, with some degree of planning. And he talks about voices in his head and describes how the school tie is trying to strangle him. And you always had an interesting take on this. Well, I think he realises the impact that statements like this are going to have. Um, and if he's performing the role of a, a mentally unwell adolescent, that's that's something that, that is going to get him attention. It's something that's going to upset other people. So I think it's a performance rather than anything genuine. It's nearly comedic. As you say, um, you know, it was, my tie is trying to strangle me. It's kind of like that thing, my, you know, uh, my hair doesn't like me. Mm. And he gave a name to his school tie. He called it Fred. And giving names to inanimate objects is, is something that happens often in horror films and some of these, these kind of low-budget movies. So, so this, is, this is straight off the small screen. So clearly what happens is that this bizarre behaviour provokes the intervention of a mental health specialist at the school. But in the end, the red flags are not sufficient for an intervention. His concoction of symptoms, etc., did not conform to what was expected. Therefore, further action would not be seen necessary. Possibly, this person is not entirely aware of the whole plethora of behaviours that are behind this. Liz, is there a sense that Daniel is playing this game too? Because he wants the mental health specialist, he wants an intervention, but not too much of an intervention. So it's a delicate balance for him. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't want somebody to to tap into exactly what it is that he's doing. And I think he realises that this person is going to have a little window into into his life, but they certainly aren't going to have the full picture. And do you think that uh, that uh, Jackie, Daniel's mother's kind of middle classness, that sense that she's in that community, a new community, she doesn't want to stand out? Do you think that concern about labelling him uh, within the field as someone with mental health problems was one of the key problems in this whole story. Yeah, you don't want your child to be labelled within the, the cohort of their peers as the odd one, as the abnormal one. Even if that's already going on informally, you really don't want it made formal or made official by any kind of intervention of that yeah, sort. No, no parent wants their child to have a carry a label. And in fact, most services, most, most kind of like you know, medical services, uh, are very reluctant to actually give a label to a child that's growing because of the stigmatising problems. Uh, and sometimes, you know, that, that lack 
of being um, kind of uh, making an intervention, of actually slapping a label on someone, sometimes has dangerous consequences. Well, in the end, Daniel, as we all know, aged just 14, killed his mother and then tried to cover his tracks with a story which came straight out of his favourite soap, and that was Coronation Street, as we've heard. What's extraordinary for me here is the quickness and the speed with which he started to blame his apparently terrible upbringing. Yeah, he, he is always placing the blame on, on Jackie. She is the target of, of his vitriol. And he's aware of the, the, the power of that story of my parents have separated and, and I'm, I've gone through this terrible experience and it's all my mum's fault. It is straight out of the, the pages of a teenage problem magazine, isn't it? It's, he's, he's performing this, this character. But it's also quite a sophisticated defence for a 14-year-old. It is, but then again, in a mechanical sense... Daniel is probably more advanced in terms of actually regurgitating and reconstructing crime plots. That, no matter how complex, he, he, could, he could understand very complex things that other children perhaps of the same age maybe couldn't. Um, it's just the emotional deficits that actually make him really stand out. Because mm, the, the, the amount of, of, of violent media that, that he's engaged with is, is, is excessive. And, and most children who, who watch violent films and play violent games don't do it to the same degree that Daniel did it. So the level of exposure that he's had and the, the lack of kind of breaks on that in terms of any um, kind of sadness or, or getting upset at what he sees, that's just not there for him. So, so he's, he's been really absorbed in this stuff. So there's a lot of exposure and effectively this was research, active research for him to allow him to come up with such a, a kind of interesting Yes, and he did, he, did, he did the entire thing on his own. There was no mm. one sat beside him going, ooh, that's horrible or rationalising any of it. He did this on his own. He was his own expert within this field and he wanted to show others that he could really twist their minds in in terms of motivations, etc. I suppose, in essence, about his forensic awareness, the point is that he wrote this detailed script about this perfect murder and then went about doing everything he could to eradicate and erase this. The police had to look at the third backup He'd erased the first and the second, and as I'm aware, the third back. I mean, so he'd gone to huge lengths to cover his tracks, Liz. Mm, he appeared to know what he was doing when it came to computers, but I don't think he'd anticipated quite how thorough that police investigation was going to be. I mean, just finally, do you think he thought that the rest of his marvellous plan was so effective that actually it wouldn't provoke, you know, a detailed, you know, for, uh, analysis of his computer tracks? You know, or only a cursory little look at I, this? I think he was fairly well aware that it would have incriminated him and he wanted rid of it. However, he did kind of leave one copy that could be accessed. So was there something in his mind that was kind of proud of what he'd done? Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, because there's a, there's a confessional kind of strand in, in lots of people. They kind of need to confess. But I, your thought is different. Yeah. He was proud of this. So he, he couldn't really... He, kind of commit a perfect murder. Yeah, he didn't want to telling destroy people it. about it. He didn't want so, to destroy this this, so, this wonderful thing that he'd done. So he yeah. had the, this wonderful performance, but if it was the perfect mor- murder, he couldn't quite, you know, stay quiet about it because everybody had to know about how fantastic it was. Well, that is a really interesting point, Liz. It is, isn't it? Because it, it shows that whilst Daniel is quite well psychologically kind mm. of developed in terms of covering his tracks and that kind of thing, you know, he's not quite mature enough to have have you know covered up this trophy of his 
So what's the point committing a perfect murder if no one knows about it? And that is the dichotomy of those who would wish to commit a perfect murder. Well, I mean, in the end, is Daniel Bartlam a psychopath? I think he's definitely displaying psychopathic behaviours. Um, it'd be interesting to see, had this not happened, what would he have ended up doing five years, ten years down the line? But, but yeah, I think it, there are psychopathic behaviours there, but, but I'm reluctant to, to really place that label on him because he was so young at the time he did this. I'm intrigued, uh, as you say, if this had not happened. I'm intrigued if this had happened and he had not been convicted and got away with it, what else would have happened? Well, it's it's something else that hasn't been challenged and, and that he's got away with. So it, it wouldn't have surprised me if, if something similar would have happened further on down the line. I think he, he has definite psychopathic tendencies and I think I'd place him more towards the kind of schizoid, Asperger um, kind of child. So explain but, to us what yeah. you mean by, by that on that spectrum. So he's more impenetrable to, to checks and balances. Yeah, he's he more has, impervious to intervention. He, he, he lacks the kind of manipulative skills that a, a psychopath would have shown much, much earlier in life. Uh, and also the deviousness. And, and also psychopathic individuals love to engage other people. They have fun manipulating other people. So do you think if he was perhaps a truer psychopath Psychopath, in uh, from your perspective, he might have actually got away with it. I think perhaps he would have been recognised much earlier. I think his behaviour would have been far more worldly disrupt- disruptive. He would have been mm. spotted, if you like. He would have been on the on the landscape. As it was, he wasn't, and he was allowed, if you like, to be that very insular. That's what that's what the kind of schizoid or Asperger individuals are. They tend to be insular. They're solitary. They don't socialise. Everything's within them. He's, if you like, autism gone wrong. His fantasies have been allowed to fester mm. when they. They should have been challenged from day one. In relation to other child killers, in what ways does he compare well with them or in what ways does he contrast with them? Well, I think when we compare Daniel Bartlam to other children who've killed, especially children who've killed very young, you know, under the age of 16, often in those cases we see violence, we see abuse, we see neglect, we see all of those kind of risk factors, alcohol in the family, um, history of, of domestic abuse within the household. None of that is here. Fascinating. Well, Daniel was convicted of the murder of his mother and sentenced to a minimum of 16 years in prison. Thanks now to my guests, Dr Elizabeth Yardley and Dr David Holmes. And of course to you. And you can watch the full documentary of Murderers and Their Mothers, Daniel Bartham, the Coronation Street Killer on CBS Reality at 10pm on the 15th of May. In episode two, we'll be looking at the terrifying case of Fred West. From me, Donald McIntyre, goodbye. <laughs>